see you. Am I on? I'm good, right? Um, good to see all the new sixth graders. Quick reminder, right after service, we have a little thing for you over in 209, that's basically out these doors and to the right. So if you would go right after service, that'd be great. Uh, some of the hop team, if you could kind of escort them and make sure you can get, uh, they can get there, that'd be great. Um, we're going to start with scripture. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be reading from verses 4 through 10. If you don't have your Bibles, um, then the words will be on the screen. But uh, most of you should have gotten a new Bible. If you're in sixth grade, hopefully you got a brand new NASB Bible. It's a little different from the one you're used to reading, but um, you'll see why. Luke 8, verses uh, 4 through 10. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 10. Now read it for us, and then we will begin. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 10. And when a large crowd was coming together, and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, Jesus called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples then began questioning him, Jesus, as to what this parable meant. And Jesus said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This summer, uh, we're going to be spending our time in the parables. So all summer long, each Sunday, you're going to be hearing a different parable. Uh, and we decided to do this for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's going to help hopefully some of our new sixth grade friends um, because you know all these parables. All of you know all these parables. You've been hearing them ever since you were little. So it should be very familiar to you. And then secondly, it's because parables happen to be Jesus' favorite method of teaching. If you count them all up in the gospel, there's 47 of them. There's probably more parables that Jesus spoke, but these 47 recorded. So if you think about it, Jesus spoke parables for a reason. And so we wanted to kind of take a look as to why. Because I don't think Jesus just does it. And I don't think uh, Jesus just kind of puts them out there. But I think he does it for a particular reason. And so for those of you that are new or, you know, whatever, you all understand. Whenever we do anything, we love to ask this question, why? Right? Why does this happen? Why is this good? So on and so forth. So when we look at the parables, we have to ask, why does Jesus use parables? Right? Why does he use them? Because he has a reason. And there's a methodology, and he does it so often. And then the uh, gospel writers, they record so many of them. So why, right? And spoiler, it's probably not the reason that you think it is for, right? Whatever you think he used it for, it's probably not the reason. Now, parables in general are fairly simple. They're these short, common stories that people tell, right? Like analogies. And they're, the whole purpose of them is to, is to teach you a lesson, right? Teach you a moral using a common story that all of you can relate to. Parables in general are very common to normal life. They're very relatable. And therefore, in theory, they're supposed to be really easy to understand. And you're supposed to be able to get it and then kind of, you know, eat the lesson and then be able to move on. Think like tortoise and the hare, right? Everyone knows this parable, right? Of the fact that just because you're fast and you finish first doesn't mean that it's always the best, this kind of idea, right? And just a little tidbit, apparently the tortoise and the hare isn't a parable because by definition, a parable can't have animals in it or whatever. But like, or like, you know, talking animals or whatever the case might be. But you get the point. These common stories that all of you are supposed to be able to relate to, right? Some of you might be the hare, some of you might be the tortoise, depending on who you are, but you understand what this means, and so you're supposed to be able to understand and learn this lesson. Now, even the meaning of the word parable uh, suggests this, and if you look at the parable, in Greek it's parabole, that screen is not on, it should be behind me, they're not going. Uh, parable, yes, no, maybe? 
There you go. It's parabole. Now, if you split up the word parabole, right, that's in Greek, by the way. If you split that word up, it's a compound word with two words put together. Para means around, and bole means something thrown. So the word parable literally means something thrown alongside or something thrown in alongside something. Think like fries to a burger or kimchi to, well, anything in my book, right? Or guac to like anything Mexican, so on and so forth. Whatever you throw it on the side to make it better, right, that's what a parable is supposed to be. But as we read in Luke today, it doesn't seem like that's what parables actually do. Jesus told a very, what seems like a simple parable, and the disciples are confused, and they ask him, Jesus, what is this parable? I mean, you know what this parable is, right? It's the parable of the sower. No, 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 wait. It's the parable of the seed? No, 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 It's the parable of the sower. I'm confused. I, I don't know what it is. But anyways, we think we know, but maybe we actually don't know. Now, back in the day when I was in college, and this is way back, I graduated in 2006 to kind of understand. Some of you weren't even born yet, I don't think. Uh, but there was a show, there was a television channel called MTV, Music Television. It still exists, but nobody watches it because we have YouTube, and why do you need anything like that? You have all the music videos and all the BTS videos that you could ever want on YouTube. But back in those days, if you wanted to see a music video, you would have to turn on MTV. And on this channel, during my college years, they had this show that was my favorite. I'd watch it all the time. It was called MTV Diary. And the whole purpose of it, they would get celebrities. Back in the day, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Jay. Beyonce knows before she was just Beyonce, but Beyonce knows. They would get them to come, right? And then they would basically follow them around for a little while. And they would basically look at a behind the scenes look at what their life is like, right? If you've ever seen, uh, maybe some of you are too young, but if you've seen Beyonce's new homecoming Netflix documentary about her Coachella performance, that's basically what this is like, right? It was like, this was before all that happened, right? So basically they would go and all these celebrities would come and they would talk about their lives, talk about what it's like being famous, talk about what their lives are like, award shows, whatever performances, all that kind of stuff. And every single time the, music, uh, the show would play, they would have this tagline at every commercial break. Yes, TV has commercial breaks and so on and so forth. Then they would say, you think you know, but you have no idea. They repeat it over and over and over. And the idea is simple. You might think you know what it's like to be a celebrity. You might think you know what it's like to be famous. You might think you want to be famous and a celebrity, but you actually have no idea. You don't know how much work it takes. You don't know how much dieting it takes. You don't know how much hard work, exercising, whatever, practice, all that stuff. You actually don't know. And then for some people, it was like, you don't actually know the cost of fame. You think you want to be famous, but you actually don't know what it all entails. You think you know, but you have no idea. I thought about that because I think if Jesus were to use a slogan, he won't. But if he were, right, I think he might have used this. That with the parables, you think you know, but you really have no idea. Again, is this the parable of the sower, the soil, or the seed? So then we have to ask, right, as astute Bible readers, and we'll try to teach you how to read the Bible a little bit better as you go through this ministry. Why? Why does Jesus use parables? If they're not to make it easier, then why does he use it? It'd be like going to school and asking your teacher to explain a hard physics concept or whatever you're learning, and then they give you some analogy or some little like lesson thing, and then it just makes it more harder and more confusing. That would be bad teaching, but that's what Jesus does. And if you read the parables throughout the scriptures, people leave not like, oh my goodness, like the whole world has changed. People leave very, very confused and confounded a lot of the times. So then why? Why use them at all? A professor of mine in seminary suggested the reason why Jesus used parables is because he's trying to give all of us a new perspective or maybe a new story. Because the fact of the matter is this. Regardless of what ethnicity you come from, regardless of what country you're born, regardless of what your culture is like, every culture, tradition, people group throughout the history of the world have used stories to help understand life better. 
I don't know if you know this crazy one, but did you know Korean people used to believe, maybe they still do, that if you, leave, if you sleep with a fan on in your room, you die? My college didn't have AC, so I had to sleep with a fan on, and I'm telling you, people were worried that I was going to die. Didn't die. I'm still here, right? Things like that. Apparently, there's another one. Apparently, if you take your like, nail clippings or whatever and you throw them over your shoulder, apparently like, ghosts come. I don't know, some, some crazy stuff. Like, just... But anyways, every culture has them, right? You have them. You have them. Your parents will tell you a lot of different things. Chris, you're trying to fix this. You're making it worse. Oh, there it goes. Um, like, uh, you know, every culture has them, and you think, like, you, you, you understand what it is. But, like, the thing that we need to make sense of, and I think the reason why Jesus uses these stories is because he's trying to let you in on a little secret. And here's the secret, okay? I'm all about telling secrets. Actually, I'm not. The stories we are telling aren't actually working very well. The stories we are telling, the stories we keep sharing to help us out with our lives aren't actually helping us out. And so enter Jesus with his story or history. Huh? Get the pun? If you were at a retreat a few years ago, we actually did that alive in history. You remember, right? Jesus' story, his stories about human existence, his stories about human life, his stories about what life is about. And he does it so that indeed we can stop to dis, the kind of disorient our stories about what we think is true in life and then to input his stories to tell us what indeed life is actually like. That's why he says, and to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to the rest it is imperable so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Jesus is talking to disciples, and so he's saying, you disciples, you know the mysteries, but everyone else, they don't. Now, if you read the Bibles, and for the new sixth graders, if you pay attention, you'll notice that some of the words are in capital. Anytime you read the Bible and you see the words that are in capital, you know that the author is quoting another text, generally the Old Testament in the Bible. So Jesus here is quoting, and Luke is writing it down, quoting Isaiah 6. And let me just give you the quick background on what's happening here, okay? In Isaiah 6, King Uzziah has just died. Anytime a king dies, a whole lot of stuff is going on, transitions happening, people are doing all these things. Then God goes to Isaiah and God gives him a vision. And the vision is this, okay? God is sitting on the throne. Yahweh is sitting on the throne. And over the time that he's sitting on the throne, Isaiah sees all these kings and rulers pass by, come and they go. But God still remains on his throne, right? And then as he's sitting there, right, there are angelic creatures, right? above and around his throne, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of glory. We sing this in songs. It's in Revelation. This text is quoted six times in the New Testament. It's a very, very important text, right? And as the singing is going on, the temple that God is in starts to shake. It starts to fill with smoke. And Isaiah sees all this in a vision, and then he gets startled. He gets frightened and really scared. And he goes, woe is me. Death is to me, right? I am ruined, and then a voice, right? The voice of God comes and says, who will go for us? A.K.A. me, the Father, the Son, the Trinity, uh, the Holy, Holy Ghost, right? And then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God says to Isaiah, the quote, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of these people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their ears, hear with their, or see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. All the rulers going around and then God tells Isaiah, look, you're, what you're seeing, you're not really seeing. When you're hearing, you're not really hearing. And you need to stop seeing what you're seeing and stop hearing what you're hearing in order to be actually be able to hear and see what you're supposed to see. You get it? That's what Jesus is trying to say. But now let's, let's put it all together. Another Bible reading tip. Anytime you read the Gospels, you should cross-reference. If you don't know what that means, that means you should read one Gospel and then compare it to another. So Luke's version in this Gospel says this. 
But to the rest, it is in parable, so that seeing they may not see, so on and so forth. But Matthew's version, which is a little bit different, has one small difference that makes a big difference. He says, therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see, so on and so forth. Now, you might be like, that's just one word, Pastor Pete. You're making a big deal about one words again, but you know, you have to really understand. If you really start to understand what this is saying, here's the difference. Luke is saying, when you say so that, or in order that, or therefore, one of those causation words, he's saying because, so that they don't see means the reason why Jesus speaks in parables is to make sure that the people who aren't seeing and aren't hearing continue to not see and not hear. In order that they stop seeing and they continue to hear. Do you get it? But Matthew's version, when he says, I speak in parables because while seeing, they're not seeing, is because saying, because they don't see and because they don't know and because they don't hear, I'm speaking in parables to help them. Now, if you realize, then what's happening is there's very big difference between those two things. Luke is trying to obscure, make more difficult to make them not to see, and Matthew's trying to reveal, right? Because they're not seeing, so help them see. So which is it, Jesus? Are you speaking to make it harder to obscure or to reveal or to uh, frustrate or facilitate? Well, my professor is helpful, and this is where we kind of get into the meat of things today. Bear with me, I know. I've gone way past the the 15 minutes that you're used to in sermon. We have a whole another 20 minutes to go. My seminary professor taught me that every parable follows a very simple structure, okay? There's secular Okay, surprise and scandal. By the way, Pastor Goose and I, we, we, we take lots of time to think of these uh, literary terms. This is my, uh, my professor's terms, but uh, we do this a lot. But anyways, secular, surprise, and scandal. Here's how it goes. Every parable you hear will begin with a secular note, a.k.a. common note. You should be able to understand what's happening in the parable. Very simple, okay? It should say, oh, I get it. Like, oh, duh, like I understand. That makes sense to me, that kind of idea. Then after the parable introduces you to a very ordinary concept, the very next thing that happens is surprise. Something that makes you say, wait, 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 come again, wait, say, wait, say that, wait, one more time, just one more time, come again. Things you didn't expect. In a movie, it's called a poly, uh, pl- plot twist, right? You think you know, and then you just don't know as you go, right? And then the third part of every parable, which means every parable you know, the Samaritan, uh, Samaritan, Good Samaritan, right, the... Uh, the, I can't think of the parable, good seed sower, so on and so forth, right? Prodigal son, all that kind of stuff. They should all have this element. And then when the surprise that you go, oh, wait, what was that? Starts to sink in, every parable should then make you feel scandal. Now, I'm not using the word scandal in maybe the way that you understand it, but scandal is basically simple. It's anything that surprises you, but then makes you feel uncomfortable or unsettles you. You hear something, and then at the core, you're like, oh, you just don't feel right and you're offended, and you're like, oh, and then you don't like it, and then your core starts to like wrestle with it because you don't like it. That's what a scandal is. A scandal challenges what you thought you knew and then puts new information in it to make it seem. It'd be like this. If you're in school, right, for those of you who graduated, it'd be like finding out that your valedictorian who you thought was perfect and everything, all of a sudden you figure out he cheated or she cheated all throughout all four years of high school, and they're actually a fraud. They're not smart at all. They're just a big cheater. Or like their parents paid for all their grades or whatever, something like that. And of course, then as a student, you're like, you're pissed off, right? You're sorry, that you're angry because you're like, I worked really hard, so on and so forth. Or it's like, uh, I knew somebody that was supposed to get married, dated this one dude for like three years, and then a week before they got married, she found out that he'd been lying to her the entire three years. He said he was a law student, that he went to this university, that he had parents, he had a dad, and he had none of it. He's living kind of like in his car and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how you put up the act for two years, but that's a scandal. It shocks us. So she was, of course, she called out the wedding and all that stuff. That's what a scandal is. You're like, <gasps> And then you go, 
You think you know, but you have no idea. So every parable, all the ones you know, are supposed to follow this pattern, which means for all of the young folks in here, you got to rethink what you already knew and go, wait, that's not what I learned. Maybe, maybe you did. Good for you if you did. And then all the older folks in here who think you know all these parables by heart because you've heard them a million times, you got to think, what about the parables do I know surprise me and then scandalize me? Because they all do. Now, to illustrate, let me go over four very common parables, and maybe this will help. Okay? Parable of the sower, the seed that we read today, right? Parable of the good Samaritan, parable of the lost sheep, and then parable of the prodigal son. Now, the secular, okay? Simple. The sower goes out to seed. Sow seed. None of you are farmers in here, I don't think, but all of you know that to get plants, I hope you know, to get plants, you got to plant seeds in the ground, and the water, and then it germinates, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff that I don't know about. It happens, and then right? You know that. You get that. It's very simple to understand. Whether you like it or not, doesn't matter. You understand it's a concept. Funny note, apparently there's a generation, I hope you're not that generation, that thinks that vegetables come from grocery stores and not from the farm. Hopefully you don't think apple is a phone rather than an actual apple, but anyways, that's beside the point. Okay, but you get it. The good, the good Samaritan, right? Man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a very stretchy, like sketchy type of road. He gets mugged by a bunch of robbers, beaten up and left for half dead, right? That makes sense to us. Your parents will tell you, if you're ever in some sketchy place, don't be there. Run. Go do whatever. Like, don't find yourself in sketchy places, right? Don't be in places where you can get beat up, right? Back in my days when I was living in D.C., you don't ever go to the southeast side of D.C. That's where you know, like, you, bad things happen. You don't go there. So if, you're, if you happen to be there and you get beat up and whatever, that's not shocking to us. You hear it in the news all the time. That's very simple, right? A shepherd has 100 sheep. One gets lost and goes to save it. Sheep are dumb animals, so them getting lost, that's very common. And shepherds are very caring people, so them going to save it, very common. All good, secular. Or a man has two sons, and one of them is disrespectful to the father. The younger son says to the father, I want my inheritance, but not when you die, but I want it right now, a.k.a. you can go die off and just give me what I want. Now, so maybe it's a shocking to you, surprise, but not all that surprising, because if we watch K-dramas, I mean, like, is anything outside of the realm of Korean dramas? Like, let's be real, right? So not surprising, secular. Then the next part, surprise. The sower is out sowing seed. Cool, we get that. You want plants, you want harvest, you want fruit, you go sow seeds. But this sower, for whatever reason, starts sowing wildly. He makes it rain with the seeds. Some fall on the ground, some fall on the rocky soil, some fall amongst thorns, and some fall among the good soil. It's a very careless sower. I tried to plant some basil, a.k.a. I didn't do it, my wife did, and then we tried to uh, plant some genip. If you don't know, it's a, it's a, pers- uh, what a perilla leaves. When you do it, you have the little soil, and then you're like, you're like, like literally one by like, oh, please, and you like pray over it, please do your thing, please. You're not just doing this. You're not going to get nothing, right? But that's what this one does. This sower does that. You're like, wait, why? And then apparently, the ones that landed in good soil harvested a hundred times what you're supposed to get, which makes you think, then why did you plant all of them in the good soil in the first place? Then you would have gotten like a million times what you're supposed to get. Like, duh. And of course, when you realize that this person, the sower, is God, and you're like, God, what in the world are you doing? I could have done a better job if you gave me to see. Like, that's not, you know what I mean? Mm. But then you're like, wait. Then you're, if you ever said that to your parents, maybe like, you're like, did you know God is stupid? Because, you know, he so sees everywhere. And they'd be like, and they'd be like, and they'd be like mm. what do you do with that? Right? Or a half-dead beaten a man is on the street. And a priest comes by. And you're like, oh, yeah, good. Jewish man dead on the street. Jewish priest comes by. Of course the priest is going to help him. The priest goes, nope, sorry. Just walks right on by. And then a Levite. Just think of a really, really religious man. 
Doesn't, no, 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 thank you. Not today. What? But a Samaritan comes by and helps him. You're like, what? What? And if you don't know, Samaritans are Jew haters. Okay? Think like blacks and whites in the civil rights movement era. Like that's how much they didn't like each other. For that person to help the other? Or a shepherd loses one and leaves the 99 to save the one. I know it sounds romantic, but it also is stupid if you're just being honest. If the shepherd lost the one while watching over all 100, what's going to happen to the 99 when he leaves and not watches them? Not good things, most likely. And remember, there's no detail in the story that the shepherd goes and says, hey, friend shepherd, why don't you watch over my 99 while I go? There's none of that. He just goes. It's not smart. It's bad economics. It's bad anything. It's bad strategy. Well, the younger son, after wasting all of his inheritance, returns. You know the story. But the father was like waiting for him, running to embrace him. What? Did you notice in the story? There's no like, you know, like there's no like you did this, you did this. Well, no punishment, no consequences, no harsh words, no nothing. All the students up in here raising hallelujah and saying, I wish my parents could be like that. None of it. You're like, wait, 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 wait what happened? What, where, wait, wait, where's the, where's the, even the, where's the, next time do it this way. None of it, none of it. And then the scandal. Just as the surprise starts to settle in, if it's starting to make sense a little bit, it should then offend you disorient you from the old stories you knew and were living by to then hopefully reorient you to his story to live by his. And we'll see more next week as we talk about the sower, seed, and the soil. But again, why would God waste his precious word on soil, on people that aren't going to listen? Anybody? Any takers? How many of us in this room were taught ever since we were low that we shouldn't mess with people who are not worth our time because they're not going to give you anything in return? Don't raise your hands. How many of us are told that these people aren't worth my time? These people aren't worth my time. Don't spend any time on them. Don't do anything with them. Why? Because they're not going to give you anything good in return. But is that what God does? No, 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 no. And on the flip side, as good Christians, how many of us actually expect a hundredfold? We don't even expect twofold or threefold in here, let alone a hundredfold. Because we don't think it can happen. We don't think God is possibly able to do the things that we don't think that we can do. And then we also don't know that God actually does do things. What if I told you that we were going to take like half of our budget and then spend it all on the homeless people or the people who will never enter these doors ever again? Is that, bad, is that bad economics or is that good economics? Which is it? Or maybe that's a bad analogy. Actually, 75% of what we should are spent on the rocks, on the thorns, and on the rock, whatever, on the road. Most of our budget is going to go to the college kids who don't ever come. We put all of our stuff into them, but they don't come anymore because they're doing whatever that they're doing outside. We say, no, 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 focus on the ones that are here. Is that really what God is doing? Is that how he works? Is that the way this really goes? Or a Samaritan helping a Jew and spending a lot of money and time. We're, we're taught in the world, and you might laugh at this, but we're taught in the world that haters are going to hate. Hater going to hate. Once a hater, always a hater. 
Well, apparently this Jew is not a hater. And apparently the Samaritan is not even worse a hater. And if we're being honest, shouldn't it be the Jew that's helping the Samaritan, right? Because Jews are the good people. They're the God's people. They're the righteous people. They're the holy people. Samaritans are the half-breed, no, I don't know, whatever they are. But he flips it. Why does Jesus flip it? Have you ever thought that? And we'll explore it more when we get to that parable. Why does he flip it? Could it be that the Samaritan is actually Jesus and not us? But aren't we taught? I mean, let's just be real honest. Aren't we taught? that we shouldn't take help from people who are lower than us, who are not as good as us? Why did you take help from them? They're no good. When I was younger, my dad one time said, why do you go and eat over at that person's house? Their house is dirty. Isn't that what we're taught? Isn't that how we operate? Again, I always wonder, what if a bunch of really grungy, I don't know where they came from, type of people walked in and they wanted to sit right here. Who would sit next to them? Any raise of hands? What if Jesus is representing himself as a Samaritan? But in actuality, isn't he? Did you know Jesus is a hillbilly? He's a country folk? Did you know that everywhere he went, everybody knew he was from the countryside because of his accent? Take the worst Texan draw and then put them in Washington, D.C. in politics and you'll know, oh, you're from the South, aren't you? Mm -hmm. He's a country folk. Some thought he was a bastard son because, you know, Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because that happens every single day, right? Did you know our faith hinges on the fact that a crazy country bumpkin hillbilly went into the city and told everyone that he was God and then got himself killed for it? That's what we believe. That's who our God is. Or the shepherd rescues a sheep, throws it on his shoulders, carries it all the way back and throws a party for it. But we're good Korean people. We're good Asian people. We're good Christians. Aren't we taught that when you make a mistake and you went up, you, if you took all your effort, went to go find the stupid lost sheep that walked away from the rest of the crew, then you go and you scold it. How dare you walk away from me? You better come and you beat it all the way along the way. You better, you better shape up. You better get in line. Don't you ever do that again. That's what we're taught. That's how grace works for us in many ways, isn't it? But no, the shepherd picks it up onto his shoulders, carries it all the way back, and you'll find out why the shepherd picks it up. And then when he gets back, guess what? He throws a party with all of his friends for the stupid sheep that got lost in the first place. Why? Anybody in here ever celebrate a party where you made the mistake and they celebrated for you anyway? Any, any takers? Anyone? That's wasteful, we'll say. Same thing with a father. Throws a once-in-a-lifetime party just for the stupid, belligerent, disobedient, disrespectful son coming home dirty, having wasted all of his money with foolish living. And for the older folk in here, you know exactly what that foolish living is like. You know exactly what he was doing. All to throw him a party. No explanation, no consequence, no nothing. You remember? What, is the father stupid? Is he reckless? Is he careless? And did you notice in the story that the older son who stays home and does all the things, by the way, most of us are older sons in here, aren't we not? We listen well, we 
do everything we're taught to do. We study, do everything we follow. We, we stay in the box, all those things. I'm not saying you should be out of the box. That's not what I'm saying. But we do all that. But did you notice his part of the story never ends? Did you notice that? He's just left outside. We don't know what happens to him. The story never finishes. Why? Paul Ranker, a theologian, in his book says, the parables surprises, astonishes, shocks, and provokes. It obliges, it makes one reconsider things and to come to a new decision. So the four that we talked about today, what is your new decision? How have you been scandalized? What does it make you think about the way you understood life, about God and about the kingdom and all of it? Because you may notice that God in these four parables and in many of the others, he's not efficient, actually. He's not very careful. He's not calculating. In many ways, he's not successful. He's not frugal or responsible. If you're just really being honest, God seems really outrageous, reckless, out of control, wasteful, dare I say stupid sometimes. But could it be that God in doing these things is just being really generous, merciful, patient, and kind? See, our world is defined by things like fairness, that you get what you deserve. If your parents have taught that to you, maybe it's true. You will get what you put in. You will reap what you sow. You will always only earn everything that you put in. There are no handouts in this world. Good things only come to the good and those who work hard for it. How many, have you, how many people have heard that before? Don't raise your hands. This is our worldview, our paradigm, our reality. But God's worldview, God's paradigm, God's reality, as described by the parables, don't seem this way. Our stories and his story are not lining up. As a parent, I realized this earlier. My story and the stories I wanted to tell my kids did not line up with God's story, so I had to recourse. See, when you deal with the parables, a philosopher and theologian by the name of Kierkegaard says that our two worldviews, the way you think, the way you understand the world works, right? All the, all the young sixth graders, let me talk to you for a real quick second. Your parents have told you your entire lives that this is the way you get success, this is the way you should do this, A, B, C, and all, follow all this, and you'll get everything you want. That worldview, whether right or wrong is not the point, that worldview will come and collide with God's worldview. And constantly they'll do this, and they'll rub against each other, and there'll be friction. All the time they'll be doing this. And Kierkegaard says, in the collision of our faith, in the collision of our paradigms is where our faith is born. That when you start to take these two things and you start to collide them against each other, that's where faith is actually born. That actually no other way was faith actually born. That you can't have faith until you work and experience through these collisions. Faith, salvation, and the decision to follow Jesus is born from embracing these collisions and embracing the scandal that Jesus presents to you every single day. Which is to say, if you're not embracing the collision, then you may not know the gospel and you may not know faith. 
Isn't this why Jesus says, you will be persecuted for following me? My life gets too comfortable, I get scared. Now, as I thought about it, I came up with a fourth S. I didn't take that long. It was just an S, so I just realized. But the fourth S to every parable, and that's Savior. Secular surprise, sentence, Savior. Because every parable points to Jesus. You see, Jesus does so all over. Why? Because he cares for everyone. Don't let anybody in the world, sixth graders, don't let anybody in the world tell you that you're not cared for because it's a flat-out lie. Jesus cares for you. Even if you're the road soil or the rocky soil or the thorny soil, Jesus will sow his seed because you care, because he cares for you. Take that to the bank. And his seed, no matter, you know, his seed, if it lands on good soil, can indeed produce a hundredfold. The young ones in here, or maybe some of the junior highs, you don't know me very well. But if you know some of the older people, they'll tell you, I was not a very good person before I met Jesus. Let me tell you. Actually, no, no, no. That's just putting it lightly. I was a very bad person before meeting Jesus. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be married, have three kids, have a beautiful marriage, and have a home, and do things. I'm not supposed to do any of that. Sorry for the rough language, but I'm supposed to be an addict of many kinds. Psychologists over and over have told me, looking at my life. But I'm not. I'm here. Why? Because Jesus' seed can produce a hundredfold. But the unlikeliest of people. Jesus risks his life like the Samaritan to indeed save someone who was his enemy. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we were yet enemies of his, Christ died for us. Jesus is indeed the shepherd who goes out to save the one and rejoices when he does. Jesus actually isn't all about the masses. Do you know that? He's not about everybody and the most important and most fast. He's not about the majority. He's about the one, the little, the tiniest, the poorest, the most least of all of these. That's who he cares for. So if you feel really small and really poor and really little, guess what? You're in a good spot because that's the person that Jesus really cares for. If you think you're all big, mm, you might want to reconsider. Jesus welcomes all of us home with open arms and makes us sons and daughters, the center of the greatest party the world has ever known. Not because you did anything, but finally because you realize that you have a God that loves you. Scripture says that the heavens and all the angels rejoice over one, one sinner come home. Now, we want to finish. I'm going long, but Luke tells us here in verse 8, he who has ears, let him hear. And then God tells Isaiah, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Make the hearts of his people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, so that they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now, here's the fact of the matter. I think the reason why Jesus speaks parables, because I think most of us come in here knowing exactly what we want. The seasoned Christians in here, let me talk to y'all for a second. You walk in here knowing what you know, knowing what you think you need, and knowing what you like. And so if I say, or Pastor Goose says, or someone else says, or someone does, the things that you don't like, that you don't think you need, that you don't want, and that you don't know, then you don't like it. Oftentimes people will come up to me and say, Pastor Peter, I really liked your sermon. I wonder, what does that mean? Does that mean I just told you what you already knew, what you already wanted to hear? Because whenever I read scriptures, I don't walk away feeling that way a lot of the times. Except for one thing, I walk away knowing I'm a wretched fool that deserved death, but I somehow got life. That's the only thing I agree with most of the time. 
We think we know, but we don't have no idea. Did you know for a while, whenever we did start this intergenerational thing, we had every single time we have, we invited the new sixth graders, I apologize to y'all, but there are a lot of people, a lot of older people, a lot of adults that would walk in here and say, oh, I'm looking for a Korean church, I'm looking for a place, and they would point us over here, and they would walk in, and they would see, and they would see all the little people, and they would walk straight out. And they go, I am worshiping with little kids. That's not what I came here for. Because they can't teach you anything. Because we're here to teach them everything. I learn a lot from them, I'm telling you, all the time. Here's the secret, y'all. We think we know, but we truly have no idea. And the more we realize we don't know, the more we realize we don't know, the more we will have an idea of actually what is going on. The more we see and hear, but realize that our seeing and our hearing is dull and dim, not actually good, then we will realize that we need to return and be healed. That's what Isaiah says, isn't it? Jesus speaks scandal so that you might continue to not hear what you already hear, not see what you already see, and not know what you already think you know. Therefore, what you don't think you need, what you don't think you see, what you don't think you hear, you will actually hear and then be healed because that's what Jesus is trying to teach you. Which means every single time you walk in here and encounter a parable, you have to redo all the things that you thought you knew. Because here's the fact of the matter. Jesus himself is the scandal. And if you don't embrace the scandal, then you're not embracing him because the fact of the matter is he shouldn't love you for a hot second. Why? What good have you done? What good have I done? What good have we all done? But he does. He does. Over and over and over again. Junior hires, the next six months going to be rough for you because you got to listen to me speak for 40 minutes. It ain't fun. Maybe. And because you don't like it and you're not used to it, you're going to talk. You might pull out your phone, do whatever it is that you do. And then all the older, really like tight, uptight people in here are going to not like it because they don't like it that you make noise because you're bothering their worshiping thing. Every time I hear that, my heart breaks. Because you know that if these young folks were gripped by the gospel, they would listen. And guess what? They're all listening right now. I'm not trying to make you mad, but guess who's sitting in the front and I guess who's sitting in the back? Are we the Martha busy or are we the Mary? I can't get close enough, Jesus. I got to get a little closer, Jesus. I got to get a little closer. So folks, this summer, every time you walk into this room to hear a parable, one that you know like the back of your hand, and you come in here thinking, I thought I knew, but I have no idea. Jesus, won't you teach me? Because you are the wasteful, outrageous, reckless God in my eyes, but to you, everything is in control. You are the one who goes to the depths of the woods and the ends to raise and to save and to hold and to celebrate a wretch like me, one who did not deserve it. 
You're the one. Though I ran away and I said, you know what? God, forget you. I don't need you. And I ran as far as I could. I took all the things you gave me, the blessings, and I ran all the way. But every single day you waited. You waited and you waited until finally one day you saw me. And then you ran to receive me, to love me. You didn't ask why. You didn't ask questions. You didn't scold. You threw a party because why? I was dead and now I'm alive. Help me to be like you. So I hope with all of my heart that this summer will be a scandalous one for all of us as we have all of our stories that we've known and we've believed for so long so scandalized that we would then reorient them around God and Jesus who is indeed the scandal himself so that our lives would be lived the way that he wants them to be lived. And in doing so, we will be blessed. And in doing so, we become more like him. And he somehow will be delighted in all that we say and that we do in this place. So will you join us this summer? A summer in the parables of Jesus, having our heart reoriented around his. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you. We pray for all the hardened hearts in here. The ones who think they know what they already know. The seasoned veterans in here who think they already heard everything that they need to hear and may they hear with fresh ears. Not my voice, but yours, oh God. May this hit to our core. We pray for everyone else. We pray for all of the young believers and all the young ones in here who grew up thinking that these stories were cute and that they were just nice, happy stories, but indeed that you want to reach our hearts and help them to have the ears and the eyes. Maybe they actually don't hear and don't see the things that we all think they do, and so they'll hear it best. But all of us together this summer, we pray that you would indeed speak to us, oh God. Show us, oh Jesus. And in doing so, may we worship you. May you make us more like you. And may our lives be founded on the stories you tell, not the stories we've told for centuries, so that for eternity we may live a life with you. Amen. If you're ready, will you rise and join us as we sing in response?